First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 40, we're looking at this topic of God's good design. We are in part three of that, of that theme, of that idea. And as we read through these scriptures, I will comment on or I will speak about some of them. I'm not going to go through every single verse in detail, but as we read through them, just pay attention because the word of God is sufficient to get the message to us. But listen to the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 40. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. 
those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So if you remember from what we considered last week, the Corinthian believers were influenced by the prevailing worldview of their time and context to think of their physical bodies as lesser than their spirits. The spirit was important, the spirit was, was what was of God was, or was necessary to be paid attention to, but the physical body was somehow lesser than. And there was also this thinking that celibacy and or remaining unmarried was more spiritual than indulging physical desires. So if you were celibate or you were unmarried, that was better, right? And so they had two extremes because of an incorrect view of their physical bodies. So in one extreme, it was you could indulge the flesh and do whatever you wanted, live in whatever way, or the other extreme, you had to practice ascetic self-denial. You could not have any sexual relations, even in a marriage relationship. That was the kind of thinking, that was the teaching, that was the way in which people were being influenced. And this is the reason why Paul is writing his letter and correcting them and making these statements to them. So Paul counters their arguments by emphasizing the value of our physical bodies, that these physical bodies were created by God. They were not just something accidental. God made us spirits and then somehow, somewhere, we just happened to pick up a physical body. God created these physical bodies and he gave them to us. And even when they were corrupted by sin, Paul is making this statement that God redeems our physical bodies. He paid the price. He bought our physical bodies. So he has made them his own and he has redeemed them from their sinful state. And so Paul also is pointing out that although the Lord may gift and lead some to remain unmarried, to be celibate, as Paul himself was, there is nothing wrong in being 
married. So Paul is making these statements to them. He's countering their arguments. And in fact, Paul notes that it's better to get married and have sexual relations within marriage than to burn or be overwhelmed with desire and then try to satisfy those desires outside marriage. He says, how could you, if you know the value of your physical body and what God has done, how could you unite your physical body with a prostitute? Rather, you would have sexual relations within the marriage context, within the marriage relationship, in the way that the Lord has intended for you, in God's good design for you. So he's making these statements and he's talking about these things, he's countering these arguments, he's coming against the worldviews, and he's telling them that it is better for them to have married and to live in that way than to burn with these passions and desires. And it's worth noting, it's worth noting that the alternative to being married is not living together. That's the modern message, right? Well, I'm committed, I'm doing this, I'm going with what, you know, I'm doing what the Lord would say, and so living together is okay. But Paul doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say, you know, if you're not married, then just go ahead and have sexual relations because you're committed. He says, no, abstain. Be celibate until such time or until such ways that the Lord would unite you in that relationship. Sexual relations outside of marriage dishonors both gifts of God. Celibacy and marriage are dishonored when you have sexual relations outside marriage. So that's what Paul is talking about. That's what he's making this point very strongly in these statements. And again, keep in mind that right at the beginning of chapter 7 when he says, you know, now you know, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations, he, you will notice in most of your translations, most of your versions, it'll have quotes on that. That is what the Corinthians were saying. They were saying it's better not to have sexual relations. And he's saying, don't use that as the measure. Rather, understand in what context sexual relations make sense. Right? So that's what he's going after. Now, in the rest of chapter 7, what we've just read, Paul makes several statements about marriage and the possible consequences of a marriage union in Christ. And we have to read these phrases and the implications of these phrases very carefully. We have to consider them carefully so that we don't jump to a conclusion that is inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. And here's what I mean by that. Paul writes in verse 14, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And in verse 16, he says, How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What does he mean? If a Christian is married to a non-Christian, does the non-Christian spouse automatically become a Christian? Do children of Christian parents automatically become Christians? Can a husband save his wife? Or can a wife save her husband? I mean, is that what he's saying in these scriptures? So always, when you read the scriptures, make sure that you're reading the whole counsel of God, all of the scriptures. Do not take a reverse out of context because if you read this phrase as is and interpret it the way that you think rather than the way that it reads in the rest of the scriptures, you will come to some other conclusion. But if you read through the scriptures, as we study the scriptures, we see very clearly that salvation 
is in and through the Lord Jesus alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, that is individually applied and received as we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. There's no other way. It's not because you would be in a marriage relationship with a Christian that you suddenly become a Christian, right? I was about to say, you, know, you all know the story of, you know, you don't go to, if you eat hamburgers at McDonald's all the time, that doesn't mean that you're a hamburger. Or I, I don't know, I'm spoiling the joke. But you know what I'm trying to get to. The idea is that you don't become a Christian just because you're in a marriage relationship with a Christian. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says it is through Jesus Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, and through the confession of what you have made as you've believed in your heart, you have said, I accept the Lord Jesus. That is the means by which we are saved. And so we also know, even, and we read this just last week even, that it is the Lord Jesus who washes, sanctifies, and justifies us to save us from our sin and the penalty of that sin, which is death. We don't save ourselves. We don't sanctify ourselves. We don't sanctify each other. We don't say, oh, you know, uh, let me lay hands on you and now you're holy. We don't do that. We can't do that. We bring people to Jesus, and Jesus cleanses, washes, sanctifies, justifies. He does the work. It is as we were even reminded in the recent sermon, you know, that it is like Andrew bringing people to Jesus to say, here, this is the Messiah. This is the one who can do this. This is the one who can wash you. This is the one who can baptize you. This is the one, even as John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water and I'm pointing you to the Messiah. He's the one who will baptize you with fire. So we don't interpret these verses in 1 Corinthians in any other way than with the full understanding of what salvation is about from the word of God. Similarly, you know, when, and so, so when, when Paul is using these phrases, so, you know, he says save and, and, you know, sanctified and so on, in speaking of saving one's spouse, Paul is essentially referring to the fact that that spouse is evangelizing or winning them over through their words and through their deeds. They're living a Christian testimony in such a way that they're able to witness to the spouse. They're able to bring the Lord to their children. They're able to share the love of God in such a way that those folks that they are living with would be saved. Paul is speaking, in, and we'll see this actually when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, we'll see another reference where Paul's speaking of saving people. And Paul is speaking of becoming all things to all people so that by every possible means he might save some. Is he doing the saving? No. But he says, I will do all things to all people in all ways so that they may be saved. And when he's talking about that, he's using that word save there as a synonym for winning or persuading people to the gospel. Persuading people with the gospel. And so here in chapter 7, Paul is saying that a believing spouse or parent can by their conduct influence their family to the Lord. Right? Paul also uses a phrase here in, while he's going through this where he says, I am saying this, not the Lord. The Lord says this, not me, right? And, you, and 
if you interpret that in, to say, oh, well, this is then not scripture, that's not the case. That's not what he's going after, and that is not what the Bible is about. It is not saying, take this phrase, and that is from God, and take this phrase, and that is from Paul. What Paul is referring to is that he says, as Jesus ministered, as Jesus spoke, as Jesus commanded directly, he said these things. But here, I am saying these things that were not something that Jesus said directly. But I'm telling you this, and I am also speaking of the Spirit. That's how he ends the passage. So we're not taking these things selectively and saying, well, this one must be Scripture, and this is not. This is Paul's opinion. It's Paul's preference. It's Paul's thinking. I don't have to take that. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you know, Jesus spoke these things directly, and so I'm repeating them, I'm reiterating them. Jesus didn't say this directly, but I'm speaking to you about this as of the, by the Spirit. I'm letting you know that this is the truth of the word or the truth of the Lord that you need to pay attention to. So again, my point is, let's pay attention to these scriptures, these phrases, and understand them in light of all of the scripture. Now, as for the rest of the chapter 7, Paul's focus here is actually on how we are to live in this earth because of the present crisis. That's what he said. So if you think about it, he's talking about all this stuff, marriage and you know, not being married and you know, all, you know, being free and everything else. He's talking about all of those things, not to give you a, 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 a you know, sort of a primer, a, a guide on marriage, divorce, remarriage. That's not his purpose. His main focus here is how should we live in, in the context or in reality of our present crisis. The ESV says our present distress. What is the crisis or distress that he's referring to? You see, Paul is saying that since Jesus came into the world and with his coming ushered in the kingdom of God, from that moment on, we are now living in the last days. He says the time is short. And if it was short then, now it's very short. Right? But, but he's, he says, we are living in the last days. We are living where time is short, and therefore, it is important for us as to how we live. And what is the present distress? All creation is groaning. Sin is abounding. And the devil, knowing the urgency of the hour, is seeking to kill, to steal, and to destroy the world, and especially the church. There is a distress. There is an attack. You know, we sang that we would fight our battles on our knees, but that battle is true. It's there. It's raging. And he's saying the distress that you face and the attacks that you face and the crisis that is at hand and the things that are there mean that you need to be focused. It's a time of war, not a time of peace. You have to be focused. You have to be vigilant. You have to pay attention. And what does that mean? All of these things that he's talking about, don't do this or do this or do that. Why? So that you can live vigilant, soberly, paying attention to what is going on and the schemes of the devil. So how should the children of God live during this time of crisis and distress? as we diligently prepare for and eagerly await the coming of the Lord? Well, first thing, 
Don't be concerned about your social status. Here's what Paul states in verses 17 through 24. If you're circumcised, that is, you're a Jew, don't boast about that, or don't be somehow ashamed of it and try to change it to become uncircumcised. If you are uncircumcised, that is, you're not a Jew, don't be ashamed of that status and think you're a lower-level Christian, and don't try to desire or don't try or don't desire to be circumcised. If you were a slave when you became a Christian, you can gladly receive freedom when it's available, but don't worry about your current state. If you were a free person when you were called by the Lord, don't boast about your status. Don't say, oh, look at me. Right? Instead, understand what it means to be a slave of Christ. Bottom line, don't think too highly don't think too highly of or don't be focused on your social status. And don't think too little of your social status and be focused on improving your social standing. You know what I'm talking about when I say this. How many people do you know around you, and maybe you've done this too, you say, to look good before people, to be noticed in society, to have a good social standing, to have a reputation for our family, to be recognized as somebody prominent. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'll do for my children. This is how I'll present myself. We do this in small and big ways. We pursue social status. And the Bible is being very clear. Paul is being very clear in this. This is not your concern. If you're going to spend your time worrying about social status and thinking about how to improve it, you will waste your time on that. He's saying don't ascribe value to your actions and accomplishments as the world defines what is valuable and praiseworthy. The world will say, oh, if you're a prominent politician or engineer or Nobel Prize winner or something else. That's what's important. And Paul's saying, no, don't, don't, don't define your status by that. If you were circumcised, fine, remain that way. If you were uncircumcised, fine, remain that way. If you were a slave, fine. If you were free, fine. If you're male, female, doesn't matter. Greek, Jew, doesn't matter. Gentile, it doesn't matter. Don't make that your focus. Don't boast in your whatever, your family name. Don't do that. None of that is relevant. And if you think that that's relevant, you will pursue that rather than pursuing God. You will start to do those things that will count in those ways. Oh, I've gained some points. It's like in increasing your credit score. I'm becoming more socially you know, worthy. I'm becoming more acceptable in society. No, he says, don't do any of that. Because none of those things are important. Instead, keeping God's commands is what counts. Your pleasing God is what counts. Your contentment and resting in the Lord, not striving for power and position, is what counts. When we spend our time, our talent, and our treasure 
on those things that matter in the world, we are choosing to not spend our time, our talent, and treasure on things that matter to God. We are making a choice. And Paul says, if you do that, you've chosen incorrectly. Which brings us to the second point. Don't be concerned with the things of this world. Don't be concerned with the things of this world. As we've already established, Paul is not opposed to marriage. He's not saying, you know, don't be concerned with the things of this world, don't get married. He's saying, look, because of all these things that are going on, if you decide not to get married, that's okay, that's fine. That's actually not a bad thing. You can give yourself to the Lord, you can, you know, be apart from these things. And he's pointing out that getting married and staying married requires a lot of attention. And all the married people say, yeah, yeah, I know. A lot of attention, a lot of work, right? Getting married, finding that spouse, right? and then staying married requires a lot of attention, a lot of work. And he says, look, if you can avoid that, sure, avoid it, right? And there will be many cares and concerns that come up in family life. Lots of things, almost every day. Every day, something's going to come up right before you get married. This is a good message right for you there. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, lots of cares and concerns that can come up. But if in the middle of all of that, you know, and by the way, this is not just for married people, right? Single people. Right? You can have cares and concerns all the way too. And you start to think about things and you have a different set of cares and concerns. But you can have a fear that you will be alone. You can have a fear that, oh, if I don't get married, what will people think? Maybe people will condemn me. Maybe people will look down on me. Maybe people will say, oh, you know, he or she just wasn't able to find somebody. Oh, I better find somebody. And you have a different set of cares and concerns that start to motivate you, that start to drive you, that start to compel you. But he's saying, look, don't, don't be bothered about any of that. If you are to be married, God will make that happen. If you're not to be married, God will give you the gift for celibacy. But he's saying, look, the point here is that not, it's not that you must marry or that you must not marry. The point is that you don't become overly concerned with the things of this world. Has he called you to be married? Do it the best way that you can. Live in every way as the Lord has called you. You know, let that be the model. Let, that, let your marriage so shine and show forth that relationship of Christ and the church that the world looks at it and says, oh, I want this. And I want to know Jesus who makes this possible in your marriage. Make that happen. By all means, do it. Right? We live far short of that in the church, and therefore the church goes through divorce and everything else just as well as the world does. But the, world, but the Bible is not calling us to that. It's saying live in your marriage in such a way that it shows the relationship of Christ in the church and demonstrates the love of God in a powerful way. So you're, are you called to be married? Oh, do it. Do it well. Are you called to remain single? Do that well. Give your life to the Lord. Be, be all in for him in that way. But in the point that this, that this passage is making, in addition to serving and loving one another, in addition to doing these things in all the ways that the Bible calls us to, married couples and singles must figure out how to serve and love the Lord, both individually and corporately. 
So he's saying, look, if you go into this, if you go into whatever thing of the world, and you think that's your pursuit, that's your primary focus. Marriage is to make me happy. Marriage is to make me you know, serve or do or whatever else and to amplify me. You've missed the point. He's saying, look, you need to figure out both individually and corporately, how can you serve the Lord? How can you glorify God? How can you do what his purpose is, fulfill his purpose for you? Because the ultimate call on our lives is that we respond and apply to the word of God that we have heard by being entirely devoted to the Lord. That's what he's getting after. That's what he's going after. You see, in verse 35, you know, see, God's good design for our lives, what verse 35 says, is that we may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. He's saying, what is it that divides your devotion? What is it that would divide your heart? What is it that will take you away from following the Lord? Get rid of those things. Address those things. Put those things in perspective. Put those things in and understand the priority that needs to be there. But give undivided devotion to the Lord. And when I say devotion, you may think of monks and priests and devotees. And you say, oh, those people are devoted. I see that. I see how they've devoted their life for God. But I'm not talking about devotion in what we would merely think of as religious devotion. right? Biblical devotion is all about our relationship with the Lord. Biblical devotion is giving ourselves entirely to the Lord in whatever we do. You can be entirely devoted to the Lord as a student, in your parenting, in your job, in your leisure activities, in any and every way so that there is no separation between secular and sacred. That's the way that the Lord wants us to be devoted. It's not asceticism. It's not becoming a priest and going away or something like that. It's not, that's not the only way in which you can be devoted. But rather, that we would say, in whatever I do, in everything I do, I will do it as to the Lord. I will do it for the Lord's glory. I will do it in honor of God. I will pay attention to my words and to my actions and to where I go and to who I interact with and what time I spend. I will do this as unto the Lord. In my job, in my places, everything. That becomes the driving force, the compelling force. That becomes the way in which we would say, I'm devoting my life to God. What do we devote our lives to? You know, plenty of people around you who have devoted their lives to something. Maybe it's making money. Maybe it's, I don't know, NASCAR racing. Maybe it's, maybe it's mountain climbing. Maybe that's something else that they've devoted their lives to. Right? They've devoted their lives to it. You know. They will do everything to pursue that. But the Lord is asking, what have you devoted yourselves to? And will you devote yourselves to me? 
You may have heard the expression daily devotions, right? Or even, or even you may have a book at home that says daily devotionals. And you, know, and you have uh, online reading programs and things that say devotionals. And what it refers to is uh, short prayers or, short, or daily Bible readings or worship-oriented short writings that are all meant to, use, to be used for regular quiet times or times of individual prayer. And we say, oh, I had my daily devotions today. Right? I had my time of devotion to the Lord. I, I spent time, you know, and I used my devotional, you know, my, my whatever, you know, Charles Spurgeon devotional. I, I, I used my devotional and I, I spent time with the Lord. And, and those are great, and, and I encourage you to continue in them as they are a blessing and useful spiritual discipline. It'll keep you organized in certain ways. It keeps you focused, and that's wonderful. But the devotion that the Lord is talking about is more than just giving some focused time to the Lord at the beginning of the day. It's not just about those 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. It's not just about that. It's not just about I had my time of devotion. Right? It is to say, my entire being, spirit, soul, and body are given to the Lord. My entire attention is given to the Lord. My entire dreams and ambitions and desires and thoughts and things that I'm thinking of for the future are given to the Lord. My entire life is willingly wholeheartedly given to the Lord. Our devotion to God, our devotion to God is where God is more important to us than our spouses, than our children, and than anyone else. Our devotion to God requires us to live such lives where our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our wonderful little baby grandchildren that are such a joy to our hearts, all those things and all the things of this world would not be as important as God. You know, I personally, that is tough for me. Because I look at things and I look at the world and I look at the relationships and I look at the things that I do and it's tough for me to be able to do that. And maybe it's tough for many of you. So I don't want you to listen to this word and say, oh, I could never be devoted to God. I'm just not going to try. I'm just not going to attempt this. Maybe that person can. Maybe this person can. They're holy, they're spiritual, they're disciplined. They can do it. But me, I don't think so. Bible's not calling us to impossible tasks. Bible is calling us always to tasks where we have to depend on God, where we have to come to him and say, Lord, in and of myself, I cannot be devoted to you. My heart is easily distracted. I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, right? I need you. I need you. I need you to come and to hold my heart. I need you to come and to purify myself. I need you to come and light a fire in me. Because otherwise, I can't even be devoted. I can't will myself to be more devoted to you. I can't force myself to be more devoted to you. I can't make myself better 
All I can do is come and fall at your feet. All I can come and say is, Lord God, you take me and you do something with me. You mold me like a piece of clay. You fill me with your Holy Spirit. You use me for your purpose. God, you come and you do this work in me. And when we commit ourselves like that, when we give ourselves like that, the question that I would ask you is, would anyone observing your life think of you as being undividedly devoted to the Lord? Or would they say, yeah, they are devoted to Christianity and to the church and to religion and to God, but they're also devoted to this and to this and to this and to this. Or will they look at your life and would they say, no, no, this person, undividedly devoted to God. Would they observe a life marked by deep love, loyalty, obedience, and service to the Lord? Would they see that your time and your resources are being spent for whatever you are devoted to? That your time and your resources are being spent for the Lord? Would they observe you continuously maturing as a disciple of Christ as a result of your devotion to the Lord? Paul said to Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. That's the call that's here too. He doesn't say it in this passage, but when he says, be entirely devoted, let it be undivided attention, undivided devotion to the Lord. If we'd started to do that, if the church lived that way, if we would take to heart this message that is given to us, would the world notice a difference? Yeah. There would be a difference. There would be a difference in terms of how we live, the impact that we have, and the message that we send. If the object of our devotion is so clear, so prominent, so important, Others will desire to know this God too. This morning, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you that we don't get caught up in arguing about this or that, but rather we will encourage one another. We will challenge one another. We will pray for one another, and we will say, Oh, God, make us a church. Make us a local church here. Make us a body who are devoted to you. When I see my brother, when I see my sister, let me ask them, hey, how was your devotion to the Lord today? And I don't mean by that, did you spend 10 minutes in prayer in the morning? But are you giving yourself entirely to the Lord? Is everything that you are, is everything that you think about, is everything that you hope for, is it in the Lord? Is everything that you do as unto the Lord? Are, are you hopelessly devoted to the Lord, just given to him? Are you undividedly devoted to the Lord? That's the call. That's God's good design for us. He has put us in these physical bodies with all of these things that are in us and given us these relationships so that we may serve him, glorify him, worship him, the one who is worthy of everything and say, oh, Lord God, build your church. Let your kingdom come. The days are short. I am looking forward to your return.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. Oh, we thank you that you are good to us and you intend all things for our good. You designed all this for our good. And you said, come and enjoy the things that I have designed for you. And so we pray, Lord, whether we are married or we're not married, whether we are, Lord, pursuing one thing or the other, Lord, help us never to get caught up in those things. Help us never to look to those things. Help us to never think about what the world would offer or what the world would say. But help us, Lord, to pay attention to your word, to your Holy Spirit, to your encouragement to us. And Lord, help us, help us ultimately to be completely and totally devoted to you. Lord God, it is tough. It is difficult when all the things of the world compete for our attention and when all the cares of marriage and parenting and our jobs and our responsibilities, our health, our lives, when they start to crowd us. Lord God, it is difficult. But in the midst of it all, we pray for the strength. We pray that you would lift us up. We pray that you would fill us. We pray that you would give us wisdom. And we pray that you, Lord, would encourage us, would compel us, would prompt us to keep pressing in, to keep going. Lord, to persevere in this race that you have set before us. Lord, we don't know how many days exist in our own lives personally and for the world as a whole before you may return. But we eagerly anticipate and look forward to that day when we will be joined with you and our devotion will be fulfilled, will be consummated in that perfect union with you. Lord God, we praise you and worship you. Send us out, Lord, with this word ringing in us and through this week and through the rest of this month and into the next month and for the rest of our days that we will say, Lord God, help me to be devoted to you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.